talking to someone earlier uh, this evening. You're aware that our brothers and sisters at uh, Porterfield have uh, started a come-as-you-are service. And uh, they had 700 people in that service this morning. Isn't that great? If you've got a friend that goes to Porterfield, you ought to applaud him because I'm going to tell you something. The devil's mad. <clears throat> He's not happy at all that somebody said, whosoever will may come. And so you need to pray for them and pray for their pastor and pray for their staff because they have some tough times ahead. There'll be people that won't like that. The devil never likes to see a church growing, never likes to see a church reaching people. But let it always be said of Sherwood that if a church is doing the right things and not compromising the gospel to reach people, we are for them. They are not our competition. They're not our enemies. We're for them. And whatever they do to touch people with the gospel, uncompromised, we say, God bless you, go after it. How can we help? That's the kind of church we ought to be. I think that's the kind of church we are, but it's certainly the kind of church we ought to be. I was at the school this week and uh, in meeting with the faculty, I was reminded of a quote by St. Francis who said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Some people feel like they've always got to be preaching. <laughs> now, don't, I'm not talking about preachers. Uh, I'm talking about some folks feel like they've always got to confront, and that's good. Some people feel like they've got to say the name of Jesus in every sentence that they say, and that's fine. But I am more convinced than ever before that people don't want to hear how we talk. They want to watch how we walk. They want to see what our life is all about. They want to judge us over a span of times. And they'll watch us in our mistakes, and they'll watch us in our errors, and they'll watch us when we trip up. And they'll see those moments when we don't live up to the name Christian, but they'll judge us over the long haul, not over the short term. And I, I am very uh, grateful for people that don't feel the need to always be preachy. They let their faith show in their actions. They let their faith show in their stands that they take. They let their faith show in their lives. And I want us to be the kind of people that people see so much of Jesus in us in just the things we normally do that when we invite them to something like Junior Hill, they're not shocked. You go to church? You see, we earn the right to ask by what we do leading up to events like that. And I, I look at the life of Moses and I see a guy who says, you know, I can't talk a lot. And really, when you read the life of Moses, you see a man who doesn't talk a whole lot. He does preach a pretty lengthy sermon when he finally got up the nerve to do it. But I see a man dressed as a shepherd, walking with a man in the rags of a slave, 
by the temple of the God of the sun. A thousand Egyptians stand with their spears at their side. And these two ragged, sunburned, hard leather-skinned men walk in and demand an audience with the most powerful man in the world. And they say to him, let my people go. Now God had already told Moses that he wasn't going to get a very good reception. In fact, in chapter 5 and verse 1, afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Now back up to verse 21 of chapter 4. <clears throat> The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. It's interesting that people never hear when God sends warnings, but people always like to complain when their time is up. People never see the warnings that God sends and says, you can't keep rejecting me. You can't keep pushing me away. You can't keep saying no. You can't keep debating with me about this. And God keeps sending warnings and warnings. And he sends a Moses in our life. And he sends events in our lives. And we say, no, I, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to that. But you see, God in chapter 4 and the plagues of Egypt took somewhere between 6 and 10 months. 10 months before his son died, God said to Pharaoh, your son's going to die because of what you've done. Now, if Pharaoh had been a man of any kind of integrity and heart and really loved his son, he would have at least opened a channel of discussion there. But he didn't. And so God uses a series of plagues to reveal God's power against all the gods of Egypt. And so I want to answer two questions tonight. Question number one, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that is a verbal difficulty for us because we just don't know how to explain that God could harden Pharaoh's heart because how do we deal with the free will of man? That seems like a sovereignty issue, and Pharaoh didn't have any say-so in it. But it is not so much a verbal difficulty as it is a moral difficulty if you don't let God do that because God has the right to do whatever he wants to do, and man has the choice to do what he will do. And so what you have to do when you come to a phrase like this is you have to use the rules of interpretation in context. Now, if there is a battle, here's one of the things you always understand about interpretation. If there is a battle between language and justice, Justice has to always prevail. Because you see, it is difficult for us in limited human language 
to be able to explain the infinite nature of God. I mean, we're trying to explain an infinite God in finite words, and that's impossible to do. Our language automatically limits our ability to explain God, and by the way, even after you've explained Him, you haven't touched the hem of His garment because there's more to Him than can be explained. And God is loving and God is just, no matter what our words sometimes are inadequate of expressing about Him, but here's the key to the interpretation of what God says about killing His firstborn and over and over talking about God hardening His heart. Chapter 1 and verse 8. You have to go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know the history of his country. He did not remember that an Israelite named Joseph had spared his people from famine. He was apparently ungrateful, unappreciative, and uncaring. And either it was ignorance or indifference, but it is the first indication that Pharaoh's heart was already set not to listen to God because he had at the very beginning of his rule an opportunity to learn and to know and to understand how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through a servant called Joseph had spared God's people in a time of famine and how God had used him to bless Egypt. Alexander McLaren says it very well, men supply the conditions with which providence has to work. You see, God works with a hand that's dealt him. And God works with us where we are and as we are. And what God did was he withdrew common grace from Pharaoh. When he withdrew common grace from Pharaoh, he abandoned the king to his own rebellious nature and to his flesh because of the king's unbelief. He withdrew common grace because obviously Pharaoh was not open to saving grace, but even lost people are under common grace. And he withdrew that from Pharaoh because Pharaoh had hardened his heart and he didn't remember that there was a Joseph. And so he comes to this time when Moses confronts him and he says, no, I'm not going to let God's people go. Now when I look at that, I think, boy, God plays favorites. But he doesn't. Because you see, God also judged Israel in the wilderness for their murmuring and their complaining, which he called unbelief. You see, God judges us all on an equal scale. Unbelief brings the judgment of God and unbelief hardens our own heart. It is the ingredient that hardens our heart when we do not believe God and believe what His Word says. The Scripture says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. At some point, God does back off. And with the free will of man, He sovereignly chooses not to push the issue anymore. Three times in the book of Romans, it says God gave them up. Why? Because they didn't want anything to do with God, because they lacked repentance, because of the hardness of their hearts. 
Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's why it's dangerous to hear the gospel over and over again and not respond to it. Because the more you hear it, the more you justify not doing anything about it. That's why when somebody hears the gospel, we press for an invitation, we press for a response, because we know that you harden your heart. Every time you say no, it gets easier to say no. Every time you say, I'll wait, it gets easier to wait. Now turn to Psalm 78, because Psalm 78 is a summary of God's dealing with his people. And believe it or not, this is not a long message, although we are covering a lot of chapters. That's why you have a long outline. If we were in elementary school, we would say, thank you, Pastor. <laughs> thank you for a long outline and not a long message. We are very grateful. Now, even when God deals with his people, as Psalm 78 is going to show us, even when God deals with his people in mercy, if their hearts are not right, they won't appreciate it or respond with obedience. You see, even when God's dealing with us in mercy, even when God is going the second mile with us, if our hearts are not right, we will not appreciate it, and we won't respond in obedience. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 78. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt. Verse 16. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against Him to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Verse 37. For their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were hardened in their heart. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Now here's my big question. I don't have a problem with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I don't have a problem with that. I saw the movie The Ten Commandments. I know what Charlton Heston did. You see, Pharaoh resisted and resisted, and the more he resisted, God hardened his heart. But the truth of the matter is, he was hardening what was already hardened. He was pulling away from one who was rejecting him. Because God doesn't force himself on man. God does not press his point. God gives man a free will. Man has a right to choose. And men make bad choices all the time. Why? Because they've hardened their hearts to the things of God. Man doesn't want to hear the word of God. Man doesn't want to live by the truth of God. I don't have a problem with the fact that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. I tell you what, what gives me problems is why he loved Israel. Why in the world would you love a people that complain that much? I mean, that would be every pastor's nightmare. We've got the largest church in the world, two and a half million members, all of them complainers. Murmuring and complaining, unbelief. God feeds them, they gripe about it. God gives them water, they gripe about it. God leads them, they gripe about it. God takes them through the Red Sea, they gripe about it. I want to tell you, the bigger issue is why in the world did God love Israel? Because they weren't a very lovely group. You know why God loved Israel? 
Because he loved Abraham. That's the only reason. Because God loved Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant extended to Isaac and to Jacob, and God renewed it over and over again. And we'll find a time as we study the life of Moses when God said, I tell you what, Moses, let's just even forget about the covenant I made with Abraham. I'll start over with you. I tell you, the fact that he could love Israel and put up with her is an amazing thing to me. And sometimes, sometimes we as God's people have to give the councils of heaven some discussions. Lord, how can you love that church when they complain about stuff? How can you bless them when they complain about stuff? You see, the, the greater question is not how come, how could God harden Pharaoh's heart that just doesn't seem lovely, loving? The greater question is not even how could he love Israel. The greater question is knowing the sinner that I am, how come he loves me? Because I know what's in here. And you know what's inside of you. And I don't have to explain God hardening Pharaoh's heart, hardening Pharaoh's heart, but I tell you what I I lay awake sometimes wondering, why me? Why'd you love me? Why'd you save me? Certainly wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because I had so much to bring to the table to help him. It wasn't based on talents or gifts or abilities. And sometimes we want to explain the things about the world and try to answer all the questions about the world, but the greater question is, why does God love you? And why does he love me? You see, God was not at his best when he created the world. I love to go to the mountains and see the mountains, and I love to stand out and look at those mountains and see in the cracks and the crevices, especially when the snow's on the mountain, what looks like the fingers of God just digging a trench. I love to see the leaves change, because man can't do that. God can do that. But that's not God at his best. God at his best is not the parting of the Red Sea. God at his best is not delivering Noah in the flood. God at his best is not putting David on the throne. God at his best is not Jesus being born in the manger. God at his best is not Jesus on the cross. God at his best is not Jesus coming out of the tomb. You know when God's at his best? When you and I realize that we didn't deserve God at his best and he gave it anyway. God's at his best when he takes sorry sinners and turns them into saints. That's when God's at his best. You know when God was at his best? The day that you came to the point of realizing, I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. 
I don't understand everything about it, but I know this, that when he died on the cross and when he came out of the grave, he did that for me. Not just for the world, he did it for me. And how God could love me, I don't understand. Have you asked the question lately, why does God love me? Why does God give me second and third and 15th and 20th chances? Why doesn't just God say, you know, tired of dealing with you, Cap, just not going to put up with it anymore? He could. And he would be just in doing it. But his love rules his justice. Have you asked the question lately? Why did God love me? You see, in your free will, somewhere along the line, you chose to quit rejecting and rebelling and hardening your heart. And you said, I'm open to what God's saying to me. I'm open to the message of the gospel. Now the second question is why the ten plagues? God told Moses at the burning bush that Pharaoh's attitude would lead him to strike Egypt with a series of signs. Look at chapter 7 and verse 14. Say, praise God, he's already in chapter 7. <laughs> chapter 7 and verse 14. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Now, it's important here that, that we talk about the fact that these plagues would take six to ten months. Pharaoh was raised in a culture that believed in some 80 deities, 80 gods. He believed that he himself was a god. It is a little much to ask somebody who has been raised and taught and trained all their life to believe there is no god, and if there is a god, I'm it, which is, by the way, what New Age ultimately ends up with. For the first time you share with them the gospel, for them to go, wow, that's it. That's what I want. Didn't happen with Pharaoh, and it won't happen with most of your friends. Most of us do not respond to the gospel the first time we hear it. It's a series of events. It's a process that God takes us through in softening up our hearts to listen to the Holy Spirit for us to come to the point of repentance. And so he comes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, Who is Jehovah? And I don't know the Lord. Now, go back to chapter 6, and I want you to see seven I wills. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And I want you to see what these seven I wills are bracketed by. In chapter 6, it begins five times in chapter 6. He says, I am the Lord. Now, Moses is making very clear who's the Lord, who's God, who really is God. I am the Lord. He ends in chapter 8 by saying, I am the Lord. But he gives in verses 6 through 8, seven times, he says, I will do something. Notice what he says. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you. These seven I wills come from the God who says, I am. I am says, I will. <laughs> you get it? I am says, 
I will. Jesus and the Bible and the Word of God all through the New Testament, whosoever will may come. If any man comes to me, I will not cast him out. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him. The Word of God is always about God saying, here's who I am and I will save you. I will change you. I will forgive you. I will set you free. I will deliver you. I will take you out of your bondage. God is always making I will promises to us based on who he is. Because I am, I will. And so God takes them from ultimatums to plagues. Now the word plague in the scripture means a strike or a blow of punishment. A strike or a blow of punishment. Now these first three affect all the land of Egypt. Now inside, we're already on the back page now, okay? But inside for your reading entertainment is a list of all the plagues, the warnings, the extent, Pharaoh's response, and the possible Egyptian deities that were attacked by the plagues. Okay? That's just a simple little chart that you can keep in your Bible somewhere because what you'll find in this, and we won't take time to cover it tonight, what you'll find in this is that every one of the plagues was a mark against one of the gods or a symbol of a god to the Egyptians. And you'll find where it covered. Now I want you to notice that the first three, all the, the extent, look at the extent in there. All the land of Egypt. It covered the land of Egypt. All the land of Egypt. All the land of Egypt. Now it's all the livestock of Egypt and on man and beast and through all the land of Egypt and all the land of Egypt. Now I want you to notice something. If you read all of these passages, you will find that the first three plagues covered everything that we know as Egypt. But then beginning with the insects in chapter 8 and verse 20 through 32, by the way, those were flies, and those of us raised in the South certainly know what flies are like. Number three were gnats. See, we have the fall to blame for gnats. Might have been mosquitoes, but that was against the God of the desert. But the insects, if you'll read verse 20 through 32 of chapter 8 later on, you will find that with this plague... God began to draw boundaries. And this plague did not touch the land of Goshen where God's people lived. I want you to get the picture here. <laughs> flies everywhere. I mean, the sky is just black with flies. And you go to the boundary of the land of Goshen where the slaves live and there's not a fly in sight. Cross the line over here, you're doing this. Walking around over here, you're going, huh. A lot of flies over there. I ought to take out the garbage every now and then. What God was doing is he was showing the nation of Egypt how much control he had over the elements, over events, over nature. God had one goal in mind with these plagues, to prove that there was only one God. Because all of these insects and all of these plagues and signs were signs and symbols of deities in Egypt. Now, what I find interesting about the first three, the water turned to blood and the frogs, of course, I've always had a funny thing about the frogs, you know, just frogs coming out of cereal, frogs jumping out of the bed, frogs in the refrigerator, frogs everywhere. What I find interesting about this is that the Egyptians were fanatics about cleanliness. And for seven days, they couldn't take a bath because the water was all blood. 
the priests had a hang-up about cleanliness. Although they worshipped gods in the shape of flies and gnats, that at the same time they didn't like them because they felt unclean around them. And so God just filled them with uncleanliness. Where they emphasized personal cleanliness, God said, I'm going to take away your ability to get a good shower. Chapter 8 and verse 19. God's proving that he is God. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is a great verse, this is the finger of God. But the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now here's where skeptics and people, who, especially who don't read the Bible, come up with an argument. Say, well, God's not really God because, you know, Moses turned the water into blood and the Egyptian priests did that and Moses had the frogs and they made frogs and Moses did this and, and they did that. But here's the deal. They were trying to say our God is equivalent to Jehovah. Now you have two questions that you can ask. Number one, why couldn't they turn the Nile back into water? If their God was equal to God, why couldn't they take what Moses had done and reverse it? They couldn't. Second question is, why couldn't they get rid of the frogs and the gnats and the flies? If it was the God who's symbolized by frogs, couldn't the God symbolized by frogs get rid of frogs? Sure he could, but he couldn't. And if you follow the plagues, you will notice something about the insufficiency of the gods of this world. Every time Pharaoh needed deliverance, he had to go ask Moses to do it because his priest couldn't do it. And this world will never deliver what it says it will deliver. He had to go to Moses and ask for deliverance. But the reason that these priests did this is because Satan is a great imitator. 